Welcome to the Confluence Investment Management Bi-Weekly Asset Allocation Report for June 5th, 2023. Underinvesting can have serious long-term consequences. And in the United States, government underinvestment in one key area is a worrisome trend. In today's report, Confluence market strategist Patrick Fuhrer-Hernandez takes a look at the latest numbers. Patrick, let's set the stage a bit before getting to your main point. First, I think investors might be surprised by just how much government spending contributes to our overall gross domestic product. What's the latest? Well, hi, Phil. Thanks for having me on the program. And you're right. The public sector, in other words, the federal, state, and local governments together, accounts for more than one-third of the U.S. economy. In 2022, government spending on consumption and investment made up 38.2% of total gross domestic product, and government tax revenues and other receipts equaled 34.1% of GDP. Of course, personal consumption spending is still by far the biggest driver of the economy, but government spending is nevertheless quite important. How does this compare to other countries with non-autocratic governments? The Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development keeps track of this data for most of the world's highly advanced countries, and their data shows that government is typically an even bigger part of the economy in most of our peer nations. For the OECD as a whole, government spending would typically be above 40% of GDP, and government receipts would be more like 37% of GDP. And some countries go far above that. For example, Finland's public sector spending in 2020 came to 52.5% of GDP, while receipts came in at 51.1%. Of course, a few OECD countries have very low government spending and revenues, such as Ireland. Overall, however, the government sector in the U.S. is a smaller part of the overall economy than in most advanced countries. Has government spending here been growing in recent years as a percentage of U.S. GDP? It has. For example, throughout the 1990s and early 2000s, government spending in the U.S. averaged only about 36% of GDP, but then it jumped in response to the great financial crisis and has stayed elevated ever since at an average of almost 40% of GDP. So U.S. government spending as a share of the economy today is definitely higher than in the past. Are there ways to measure the return on that spending? You know, I've never seen a serious effort to do that, probably because government spending covers such a huge range of individual programs and projects, which can be justified in a variety of ways. For example, some government spending is to provide a public good, which is defined as a good or service marked by what we call non-excludable, non-rival consumption. In other words, it's hard to prevent non-paying citizens from enjoying the good, and when an additional citizen enjoys it, it doesn't reduce the benefit for any other citizen. Classic examples would be national defense or even the establishment of a wilderness area. Non-excludable, non-rival consumption means the free market won't provide these goods, so governments do. And since the good or service is provided generally outside of any transaction, the benefit is hard to measure. For example, you'd probably need to run a survey asking each resident how much value 
you, they put on national defense or a particular wilderness area or whatever, and then add up the total value and compare that to the cost of the good or service. Other government spending might involve a natural monopoly where the marginal cost of a good or service falls for every consumer no matter how high the market gets. In those cases, to avoid one company serving the market as a monopoly with monopoly power, people may have the government provided. In still other cases, the government provides a good or service simply because the people decide it's a cherished national value. You can imagine how hard it would be to precisely measure the value of all the associated government spending. At best, you hope that the democratic process provides a reasonable judgment as to when government spending is worth it or not. I appreciate that background, Patrick. Let's move on to government spending in the U.S. today. It can be divided into several categories. Could you give us an overview? Well, from an economist's standpoint, government spending can be divided into three different classes. First of all, consumption. For example, buying pharmaceuticals for the local VA hospital or paying for the services of police officers. Then there's investment. For example, broadening an interstate highway or buying a printer for a court. And then there's transfers, such as Social Security or Medicare benefits. In my report, I focused only on government consumption and investment, which are treated as components of GDP. And you are particularly concerned with sluggish spending in one of these categories. Which one? Yes. In in this analysis, I focused particularly on investment. Now, People talk a lot about private investment, and they fret that private investment spending has slowed down in recent years. However, that's mostly because of reduced spending on residential buildings. Corporate investment in productive capacity like factories, production machinery, and software has actually kept growing at a good pace. What I wanted to understand was the situation with government capital investment, since it can also have a big impact on the productive capacity of the economy. And what has been the trend in this particular category? Well, the big picture is that overall government investment has grown pretty weakly in the period since 1960 at only about 1.9% per year after stripping out inflation. That's less than half the growth rate of private non-residential fixed investment. Now, federal civilian investment has grown decently at a real annual rate of 3.8% per year, but overall federal investment has been held down by slow growth in defense-related spending, like spending on military bases or new warships. Those outlays certainly grow fast in times of war or international tensions, but then they tend to get cut back in peacetime. As a result, federal defense investment has grown at an average rate of just 1.3% since 1960. But what's really disturbing in my mind is that investment spending by state and local governments has gone from fast growth to outright declines over the last couple of decades. State and local investment spending grew at an average rate of 1.8% per year since 1960, but since 2000, it's been falling at an average rate of 0.1% per year. Why is this a problem for our economy? 
Well, I think that's a problem because state and local governments are responsible for the bulk of the economy's basic infrastructure, including roads, highways, bridges, airports, water and sewer systems, and publicly owned facilities for power generation and transmission. Sluggish investment in this type of infrastructure can be a problem because it leaves the economy with less capacity to grow. Weak investment in infrastructure can also lead to bottlenecks in times of rising demand, thereby pushing prices higher, creating more inflation, and encouraging higher interest rates. Patrick, why have state and local governments failed to sustain their earlier pace of investment? I suspect there's a variety of reasons. Uh, For example, the U.S. has really embraced efficiency policies since the Reagan revolution of the 1980s. In other words, people have really embraced the imperative of low taxes and limited government involvement in the economy. Perhaps state and local politicians are especially sensitive to those preferences. In addition, changes in tax policies and land use issues probably have had some impact as well. But whatever the reason, there's clear downward pressure on state and local investment outlays these days. Will rising interest rates further suppress this category of spending? That's one of the crazy things about the drop in state and local investment over the last couple of decades. This was mostly a period of historically low interest rates, including low interest rates on municipal bonds. You would have thought that state and local governments would have used that as an opportunity to repair, improve, and expand their infrastructure to support faster economic growth, but it wasn't the case. Now, if interest rates continue to rise or stay elevated as we think they will, it would be more expensive for state and local governments to pay for needed investment projects. Patrick, do you think the the huge federal government infrastructure bill might have taken some of the pressure off state and local governments? I tend to think it'll help, since there is all kinds of evidence that we as a country have underinvested in infrastructure. However, I don't think anyone expects the $1 trillion or so in new spending to completely catch us up on it. I suspect infrastructure will continue to be a bottleneck for the economy going forward. How might this trend of sluggish state and local government spending on infrastructure impact the bond market? Well, all things being equal, sluggish state and local spending on infrastructure has probably meant less muni bond issuance than otherwise would have been the case. That would have limited the supply of munis, raising their prices and holding down their yields. On the other hand, if the situation now reverses and state and local governments boost issuance to increase their investment spending, the new supply could push down prices and boost yields again. But again, that would probably depend on a big resurgence in state and local investment, and we're not seeing signs of that just yet. Would it take a serious run of disasters like failed water treatment plants and crumbling drainage pipes to to change public sentiment and encourage more infrastructure spending by state and local governments? You know, Big, high-profile infrastructure failures, like maybe a bridge collapse, could probably spur localized investment, but even longer-term issues could potentially spur investment as well. For example, if the scientists are right about the warming climate and how it will raise sea levels, then maybe we need to build new levees and seawalls and move roads to higher ground. However, if the reluctance to invest stems more from politics 
and resistance to new taxes and activist government, then I suspect all that still wouldn't be enough to reverse recent trends. Patrick, just to recap, what's the main message investors should take away from these government spending trends? You know, in many of our recent publications, we've warned that the fracturing of the world into relatively separate geopolitical and economic blocks will prompt companies to adopt shorter and less efficient supply chains, and that will likely boost inflation and interest rates over time. Now, separate from the fiscal squabbles at the federal level, our analysis in this report suggests that if state and local governments continue to underinvest in basic infrastructure, there could be even more upward pressure on inflation and interest rates. All that's consistent with our view that the overall bond market is likely heading for a long-lasting bear market in the coming years. Thank you, Patrick. Our discussion today is based upon sources and data believed to be accurate and reliable. Be aware that opinions and forward-looking statements expressed are subject to change without notice, and this information does not constitute a solicitation or an offer to buy or sell any security. Our audio engineer is Dane Stoll. I'm Phil Adler. 